World-class marathoners train about 120 miles per week. That's 20 miles a day if they give themselves a day off for recovery. So for them, a marathon isn't much longer than a normal day's routine. There are exceptions, of course. Paul Turgot, the 39-year-old Kenyan legend, who recently won the Lake Biwa Marathon in Japan, has trained upwards of 200 miles a week. So a marathon distance is a bit less than what he might run on an average day. My first taste of absurd mileage came before my senior year in high school at a week-long preseason running camp. There were about 60 runners at running camp, and we were led by a half dozen coaches, including the coach from my school and a coach from a rival school called Fairport. The Fairport coach had the one trait that my teammates and I couldn't stand, and that most teenagers, for that matter, despise. He was uptight, extremely so. His favorite expression was intestinal fortitude, and he saw in the world boys who had it and those who didn't. The Fairport runners had to live with this guy, so they adapted to his lessons, a few of them probably believing his every word and thinking him a sort of Vince Lombardi. We just saw him as ridiculous, and to boot, among the coaches, he was the least capable of running himself, though it didn't prevent him from strutting around as if he had far more intestinal fortitude than any of the other coaches, and certainly any of the boys. The daily routine at the camp was a five-mile run in the morning, followed by a ten-mile run in the afternoon, for a six-day total of 90 miles. The camp was located near Alfred, New York, and most of the runs took place on little used country roads. It was a bucolic late summer setting. We brought our own tents, which we set up in an open field apart from the coach's quarters in a nearby lodge. I shared a four-person tent with the three of my teammates who also had been invited to the camp. Each morning, a six-foot, six-inch mustachioed coach, whom we called Daddy Longlegs, would blow his whistle and rattle our tent to wake us up. The rest of the day would go something like this. Eat oatmeal for breakfast, run five miles, eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch, pass out in the tent, wake up, run 10 miles, eat spaghetti for dinner, and fall asleep in the tent. There were other things going on. A rival team set up a volleyball net, and in the early afternoon they would bump, set, and spike to the sound of REM's Losing My Religion on a boombox. We were too tired, and it was too hot in the afternoon sun to join them. There were a handful of forgettable post-dinner lectures. I had some books with me that I had planned on reading, but my eyes would glaze over every time I tried. Whatever romance was percolating at the camp, there were ten girls there, was nowhere near us. Among the things I don't remember doing that week, is taking a shower, nor did the three teammates I shared the tent with. The shower facility was located in the coaches' quarters, and invading their space would have been weird. In fact, I believe the coaches vaguely discouraged it. It was fine though, showering just wasn't a high priority back then, even though we completed 12 distinct runs of 5 and 10 miles in the sweltering heat and humidity. That's many layers of dried sweat not to lather off one's body. Given how bad a runner smells after a single run, that tent must have boasted an unholy odor. 
On the third day of camp, about 45 minutes into the afternoon's 10-miler, I was passed by a group of Fairport runners, including the best high school runner in the section at that time, a guy named Nate Reuter. I was wearing a white t-shirt with blue lettering for an organization called Chemically Free Athletes, or CFA. Members of CFA pledged not to drink or use drugs during the season, and on the back of the t-shirt was the all-too-earnest tagline, quote, and feeling good. Reuter asked as he and his teammates passed, feeling good? Obviously I wasn't. My shirt was soaked through with sweat and I was shuffling along at a considerably reduced pace. I don't think Nate meant it maliciously, but the comment earned snickers from his teammates, all of whom were blessed no doubt, or at least so they thought, with intestinal fortitude. It wasn't the worst of the t-shirts. A year earlier, our intrepid if misguided captain insisted that our cross-country team t-shirts say, quote, real men do it across the chest. The lettering was small, as if it were ashamed of itself or of our puny chests, but it was still legible, legible enough for all of our classmates as we wore those t-shirts in a gesture of team unity on days that we had a meet. The girls were not impressed. The following year, my friend George and I were captains, and we had t-shirts made with the slogan, you can run, but you cannot hide, which may not have scared anybody, but at least it wasn't so embarrassing. That 90 mile week was an outlier. Our high school coach had us running 30 to 40 miles a week during the season. I ran about 50 miles a week during cross country in college, and logged a few 60 mile weeks when training for the New York City Marathon in 2006. After a 20-mile run today, I'm on the verge of cracking the 60 barrier for this week. I hope to string together six weeks of 60-plus miles before tapering for the Big Sur race. This type of mileage, marathon training, and the race itself may seem more than anything a physical challenge, but it is not. At the Guggenheim now is an exhibit of artifacts from Taiwanese artist Tai Shing Se's one-year performance from April 11, 1980 to April 11, 1981, titled Time Clock Piece. Each hour on the hour, Say punched a card into a time clock and was photographed with the punched card at his second floor apartment on 111 Hudson Street. That's 24 hours a day. This required him to be awake at every hour on the hour, certainly a physical challenge. In the photos, he stands in the same place wearing the same industrial outfit. The only thing that changes is his hair. Each of the time cards is signed by him and by a witness. The video of all the pictures strung together and the artifacts of the time cards and his outfit is grim. I left with thoughts of incarceration and the worst of office life. I was also reminded of running. Say's ritualistic punching of the time card shares something with the practice of running and of runners documenting their mileage. Say made a physical commitment for a set period of time, as a worker bee does to retain a job in a QB, or as a marathoner does when he or she takes on a course of training. He signed each time card and the machine stamp of each hour confirms that he existed there and at that time. I recorded in my running log that I ran 20 miles today. It is evidence of my existence, as are my certificates for finishing the New York City Marathons in 2002 and 2006.
Say's performance confirming his existence is documented in the Guggenheim. Mine was documented, along with 30,000 other runners, in tiny type in the New York Times. Beyond the existence of firming documentation for both Say's performance art and for marathoners, and more essential even than the physical training, is the psychic training. It is not fun to leave the comfort of one's home to jog in freezing weather. It is not fun to wake up at 6 a.m. to schlep to a race in Central Park or the Bronx. In fact, it feels a bit crazy. It is far easier to watch television or to sleep in. But completing a run is always satisfying. It is having done something. Perhaps Say was afforded satisfaction knowing that each time he punched that time clock, he knew he was closer to completing his work of performance art.